Hello and thanks for listening. I'm Jude Hill and in this special series of podcasts I'll be in conversation with church leaders and invited guests. During 2021 we are marking the centenary of key moments in the partition of Ireland, the establishment of Northern Ireland and the changes that resulted in terms of British-Irish relationships. Throughout the year the leaders of the Church of Ireland, Catholic, Methodist and Presbyterian churches along with the President of the Irish Council of Churches have been reflecting together on the response and responsibility of churches on issues of identity and belonging past, present and future. As part of that work, they issued a joint statement on St. Patrick's Day. In that, they acknowledged that some may struggle with the concept of shared history when it comes to this centenary year, but they want to focus in on the reality of living in a shared space on these islands and how to make it a place of belonging and welcome for all. So as part of their contribution to the task of building that shared space, church leaders have developed this podcast series where they will discuss with their guests some of the identity-based challenges that have impacted our society in the past and continue to undermine social cohesion. They'll reflect on the challenges of leadership in this context and share their hopes for the future. Just to let you know, this conversation was recorded towards the end of the summer. With all of that in mind, I'm joined by the Right Reverend Dr. David Bruce, moderator of the Presbyterian Church, Beryl Quigley, whose husband was murdered during the conflict here, and Dr. Gilly Carson, who worked in A&E during some of the worst years of violence. David, take us back to the St. Patrick's Day statement. What parts were you particularly passionate about including that sum up something of your heart for this year? Uh, Thanks, Jude. Let me say something about statements uh, first, if I can, because when statements are issued, they can sink into oblivion and never be noticed. But if they strike a chord, if they come at a particular moment, let's call it a kairos moment, a moment of spiritual sensitivity when the timing is right, then they do get people's attention. And in this particular case, uh, the statement that we issued partly because of who issued it. You had the four church leaders plus the Irish Council of Churches acting together very transparently and openly together, did strike a chord, uh, partly because, of course, this is a year of centenaries. We're we're looking back, we're looking forward, we're recognising the complexity of our history. But being able to speak into that was important uh, for us together as a group. Speaking personally, I have been involved in the past in a variety of moments like this. Uh, I was involved as a younger minister in the formation of what became ECONI, Evangelical Contribution on Northern Ireland, which was a space that we created to allow us to ask questions, hard questions about culture and faith, and particularly in the context of historical mistrust and division, which had been our story here uh, on this island and indeed has for, for decades. So one of the statements that emerged from that was called For God and His Glory Alone. And it was an attempt for us to reflect biblically on some of these complexities of division and hurt and hatred and to interpret the gospel as speaking into that reality. So for me, this is very much in continuity with uh, a pattern in my own personal ministry over the years. And the statement that we issued uh, was as I saw it, in continuity with what I'd been trying to do before. The statement, one feature of it was where you talked about a re-examination of narratives. Have you been able to confront narratives that contrast with yours in new ways this year? Did you have any moments of revelation along the way? Do you know, one of the really good things about the group of church leaders that we have is that we have a good, strong personal relationship and friendship together. There's a, a lot of respect in the room when we're together. There's a lot of laughter as well, but there's respect in the room. We admire each other 
together we acknowledge that each of us have different pathways and different confessional positions, but that hasn't prevented us from acting together and speaking out together. So when in dialogue with colleagues around the table, I have found it to be enriching and helpful. And I think also, and as a direct function or outworking of that, we have been able not intentionally, but kind of as an unintended consequence, to model the very things that we've been trying to say. So in our own approaches to working together and finding common ground and being able to address hard issues together, actually, and not dodging those, we've been able to say, well, look, yes, we do disagree over all sorts of things, historically, theologically, confessionally, and yet, as those who live here, we're able to speak in with a common voice on things that matter to all of us. And was there anything specifically that, that challenged you or you reconfigured your, your thinking perhaps in a new way? Let me just pick out one quote since it re relates very directly to what we're going to be talking about in this podcast today. Jude, we said, in our approach to the past, we have a moral responsibility to acknowledge the corrosive impact of violence and words that can lead to violence and a duty of care to those still living with the trauma of its aftermath. Now, we're going to be touching on that in our conversation today. And I think it's part of the sad texture of Irish life that almost everything we say and do is coloured by this. It's always there in the background. Yes, we can have our political disagreements. Yes, we can have our different historical perspectives. But this toxic additional ingredient of violence and its long-term effects lives with us. And we felt as a group, and I certainly affirm this, that it was important to name that and then take time to explore the effects of violence uh, that we, as we faced it. And you've led us into it then, David. Do you want to introduce Gilly and Beryl um, and, and explain why you were so passionate about hearing their voices today? Look, I'm absolutely thrilled that uh, Beryl and Gilly are able to join us. Beryl witnessed her husband's uh, brutal murder outside the front door of their family home. And she says, and she will have her, be able to express this in her own words, but she says that some would call her a victim of the Troubles but she prefers to see herself as a survivor. And uh, Beryl's story uh, is important for us all to hear. Uh, Gilly, uh, I've known for years, Gilly worked as a doctor in the accident and emergency unit in Craigavon Area Hospital through the years of the Troubles. And in the course of his duties, he saw the results of violence as people with injuries of all kinds arrived seeking his medical care and attention. So they both will have something important to reflect upon and to share, both as Christians, but as people with a story that's in the background and are thrilled that they're with us today. Thank you. Beryl, as we reflect on where we are as a society in the year that it is and all the debate there is around victims and survivors and legacy, um, as David mentioned, you've lived with the aftermath of loss since 1984, um, since your husband's murder. How does that continue to, to impact on your life today? It impacts in a way that is positive. No matter what I say or do or my mindset, I cannot bring back someone who's been killed, someone who's died. And so my thoughts always were, live a life that is worthy of what they were all about and what you're all about. And try to make life better for yourself and those around you. And that's what I endeavoured to do right from the very start. We had a, a little daughter, she was only three and a half, who was there at the time. And so suddenly I became a single parent 
with the huge responsibility of bringing up this child in a way that wasn't going to damage her. So I had to make sure that I wasn't damaged, that I was being positive and bringing good things and good values into her life to allow her to grow, mature and live a life to do good and to be fulfilled in herself. And in setting out with that incredible vision, how did you dig deep or how did you you find the ability to, to navigate it in that way? At the time that Bill was killed, with literally within a minute or two of his death lying on the driveway of our home, when I was in the process of ringing for an ambulance and notifying the, the security forces, etc., etc., I had a very clear sense that God, by his spirit, was speaking to me and asking me what my attitude was to what had just happened. And my conversation with the Lord by his spirit was, I don't know who these people are. There were two gunmen. I didn't know which organization they were from. And I said, Lord, I'm not sure. What is it, what is it you're asking of me? And he reminded me of the Lord's Prayer and that part that talks about forgiving those who sin against you, who harm you and that my time before the throne of God will be judged in the same way. And, and I said, Lord, I'm choosing to forgive whoever these people are, but I couldn't do this. I won't be able to do this on my own. I'm not strong enough. I need you to help me. And I can say that from 1984 until today, the Lord has been my strength. I do not have bitterness in my heart towards those people or indeed really anybody. When I see violence and awful things happening locally and in the world, I pray about it. I take it to the Lord because I don't always know the full facts about why things have happened or how they've come to be. But the Lord knows and he knows what he's what he's aiming for. He knows the plans that he has. So I, I just take it to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for sharing, Beryl. If we can move on to you, you saw trauma and pain up close consistently. Um, as David said, you saw things that no one should have had to see. How much of that stays with you today? Well, initially, after I qualified in the late 70s, my initial job was actually in the Royal. And part of my pre-registration year, I did spend three months in the NE department. There probably wasn't a day passed that there wasn't a shooting or a bombing. It didn't become normal, but it became part of our routine. It affected me very specifically in one case that I can remember as a young. It was an autumn. The reason why it was an autumn was because the wounds of this lieutenant soldier who came in were full of leaves. And I can remember that very vividly. And uh, the poor guy lost two legs, both his legs and an arm. And it just so happened that I moved from NE to a surgical ward and it was the surgical ward that he came to. And I found it very difficult to be with him and, and chat to him. And it was just hard, hard, probably the hardest period of my medical career, to be perfectly honest. Uh, he wanted me to dress his wounds and wouldn't let anybody else do it. Um, so he and I formed a relationship, but it was very hard just to bring words of hope and joy to this, this lovely guy. But the hardest part and the part that I felt uh, most difficult was when I met his parents. I felt a, a sense of guilt. There was a corporate guilt. I just felt guilty that we as a society had done this to this young fella. 
and that I found very difficult to cope with. I'd never felt it in any other situation, but in this situation I felt it a corporate guilt that we had done this and I didn't know what to say to them. And I found it incredibly difficult to relate to them in a way that I felt was any way helpful. And do you still carry like a residue from encounters like that like to this day or how do you how do you deal with that in your own mind? I think probably because the foundation of my upbringing was such that there's a very winsome, wholesome understanding of the gospel. I had friends that were of great encouragement to me. Actually, one of the friends in Beryl doesn't know this, but interschools camps, Scripture Union camps in Carrick Finn, I met Billy at those and uh, he was a guy I looked up to. He was a big, tall guy, a great rugby player. And he, plus a lot of other guys who went to Sullivan Upper, there was a lot of Sullivan Upper guys there, were a big influence in my life as a teenager and were subsequently into my latter years. And so Billy was a big influence in my life. Uh, I'm not saying that just for the sake of it. That was a fact. And I rejoiced in that. Um, So that foundation um, was incredibly important as I faced things in the future. But actually just before, between qualifying in June and starting work on the 1st of August, a group of us went on a bit of a road trip to the Royal Royal Birkdale to watch the British Open. And we, on the way back home again, we found ourselves in the Lake District and we thought we'd bumped into the Keswick Convention, but we didn't actually bump into it. God actually led us to it, led me certainly to it. And that night at the Keswick Convention, um, Eric Alexander, lovely, gracious Scottish uh, minister, spoke on Psalm 3, and it was on the fact of God being the lifter of my head. And that has lived with me. Anybody who knows me well knows that I will refer back to that psalm over and over again. So I would think probably those through those years of conflict and seeing a lot of things that were very serious, that psalm lived with me. God is the lifter of my head. Mm-hmm. David, who thought everybody was against him, his family was against him, felt God was against him, God lifted his head and looked into his eyes and brought him hope and set him back on a good foundation again. And that's what that psalm did for me. And all the friends that I met through the years prior to that who built a foundation of hopefully a gospel uh, foundation in my life, a gospel foundation of hope that there is redemption. David, can I just get your response to those incredible stories of faith, but also just the, the trauma that people have to carry? And that really is the, the essence of our conversation today, Jude. I mean, these are authentic reflections on lived experience of individuals. And those stories stand on their own without comment. What I think it would be useful for us to talk about is the, the wider impact upon our society of knowing that these stories and others like them are reproduced hundreds, thousands of times in the lives of people and inevitably will affect the way that we relate. So maybe Beryl and and Gilly, if I could come back to you, in the 100 years of Northern Ireland's existence, do you think that what I've said there is right, that we as a society have been brutalized by our history of violence and its effects? So individuals have, you have, you've lived this. But do you think as a society we've been affected? And could you put your finger on maybe how, what that looks like? I would sadly say that we have been brutalised. We're not the only society that's been brutalised by violence, but we have been uniquely brutalised. Funny, this morning I was sitting around the City Hall and it was a beautiful morning, I was sitting there and I noticed uh, a van, 
a white van that maybe, maybe takes people on tours. And on the side of the van was all pictures of violence, obviously maybe going to parts of the city that have known violence. And I thought, whoa, gosh, maybe this is more real than I thought it was, that the legacy has remained. And I think the legacy for some people has remained. The thing that lives with me, and the verse is obviously from Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, of my people who humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. That has lived with me, that, that I cannot be neutral in the middle of this and think, well, I didn't do anything, I'm not a part of this. I think God has sent to us that as the Church of Jesus Christ, we are a part of this and that he's calling us to humble ourselves before him, to turn from our wicked ways, to pray. And he promises in a covenant relationship that he will heal us and he will bring his peace to us. And so I think no matter who we are, no matter how much we feel that we really have had nothing to do with this, we as the Church of Jesus Christ, those who confess him as, as our Saviour uh, and Lord, then we have a responsibility to our nation to do what God says in those verses, to humble ourselves and to pray and to turn from our wicked ways. So we're none of us outside of the influence of our country. We're none of us, we have a, an influence in our country to bring uh, his gospel to people uh, of redemption. Okay. Uh, Beryl, what are your thoughts on, on this corporate sense of being brutalized as a people? Do you think that's accurate? Is that a proper description of how things have been? Well, I'm, I'm not a historian, but my understanding is that when Northern Ireland was established, it was through controversy. And uh, I think it was a, a six county state for predominantly Protestant British people. Now, I honestly believe that when you're in a position of power, a position of responsibility, you have a responsibility to those who need to be given a hand up, need to be helped to be part of the process of going forward. If you become elitist and superior and dominant, you alienate those around you. And that in itself brings about a sense of us and them, the haves and the have-nots. And the have-nots often turn to violence to try to bring their case to bear or to bring notification of their, their cause. And so I think that from the very beginning, we probably were birthed in a situation of violence and that has continued. And so for every citizen, I think no matter where you are or what you're doing, people in Northern Ireland need to think in terms of what are they handing on to their children and their grandchildren and the future generations. Are we making it better or are we making it worse? There are many things that we can be doing. We do it in families. Parents take time, generally speaking, to nurture their children. Teachers try to educate. Our elected representatives have a huge responsibility. They are elected by the people, but they have responsibility for the decisions that they take. And it should be for the greater good. And they should be able to talk about why they're making those decisions. They're thinking so that there is open debate with those who may not agree. I remember as a civil servant many, many, many years ago, I worked on the parliamentary staff in, in Stormont when there was a parliament a long time ago. And in the room next to where I was working, one day there was a meeting of some elected representatives. Now, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew that 
the people who were going into that room were all of a political persuasion, which was different from the one I'd been brought up in. John Hume was one of those people and others that I could mention. And at the time I thought, oh my goodness, the SDLP, what are they ever going to do? Are we getting further into this awful situation or not? Years later, my mind was turned to the fact that John Hume was on an agenda of being a peacemaker. So we've got to be careful how we look at people and how we interpret their motives. That's why we need to talk, ask the questions, tell me about what you're thinking, tell me about your motivations. And if we understand where people are, even if we don't agree, maybe it will help us to make better decisions for the today and all of the tomorrows. David, I was going to come back to you on, on the statement, the section that you mentioned earlier about uh, the moral responsibility of church leaders to acknowledge the impact of violence. And you talked as well about a duty of care to those still living with the aftermath of its trauma. How do you plan to make that real for people now? There's some unlearning to be done in this, Jude, I think. Uh, in 1971, um, a senior British politician coined the phrase an acceptable level of violence and was roundly criticised and indeed has been seriously criticised ever since for saying so. Um, and it poses a question to me, that expression, uh, as to what was going on politically in the minds of those who were trying to address this issue very early on in the Troubles, of course, as to whether there ever could be such a thing as an acceptable level of violence and how um, normalising violence or tolerating it or even expecting it at a particular level does something critical to the human spirit if you create a society with those set, that set of expectations underpinning it. Now, we are living with the consequences of that uh, still, uh, generations on. Um, I don't consider myself to be a victim of the Troubles, although I had a very close school friend who was murdered in 1979, and I don't suppose a day has gone by in all the years since 1979 that I haven't thought of him. So, in posing this question about how we exercise this duty of care to those still living with the trauma of violence and its aftermath, I think that's still a live and critical question, not just for the churches to ask, but for all of us to ask. I mean, I would love to hear Gilly and Beryl reflecting on whether they, as those who have experienced violence, feel that they have been cared for and supported and, and how that has worked itself out. I think that would be a valuable insight to, to glean. I'd have to say that, again, the foundation of family, the foundation of good friends, the foundation of, of good church fellowship have been vital for me to go through difficult, uh, challenging days. I remember being uh, in London. I was at All Souls Church in London and it was just before Drumcree and Richard Buse, who was the minister there, was praying for, for us here in Northern Ireland, probably more than even we were in Northern Ireland. They took it on board to pray for us and pray for this week that was coming up ahead. And I said to him on the way out, I said, look, I happen to be the guy who's going to be in charge of this. My boss was away on holidays uh, and I ended up as the boss of the NE department at that stage. But I was conscious of people praying for me, conscious of the church praying for me, conscious of God's people praying for me. But those were probably some of the worst weeks of my life. The fear set in because I was fearful of what we were going to have to face in the NE department. I was fearful what it was doing to our society. I was fearful 
of my own community that I was living in, that this would go terribly wrong and we would be into a situation which we could not control. And that was a very fearful moment for me. It's probably one of the few times that I felt really quite fearful for the future. Beryl, for you then, what what does duty of care look like and what greater support could be offered at a time when there's so much heightened debate around um, the whole legacy issue? I think there are times when we don't really know how many people are supporting us and praying for us. I'm sure I've just realised today, Gilly was probably praying for me uh, at the time that he heard that Bill had been murdered. Uh, and there were, there's probably lots of people who were praying for me. Certainly the church that we were part of prayed. They had several evenings of prayer meetings. I've always found my relationship with the Lord is one of those ones where it's a daily conversation. It's sort of all day and every day. And so I've found the Lord has been my comfort and he has on occasions reminded me of scripture or somebody has said something to me or written to me or texted me or something that has just been an encouragement for me to keep going. I feel that God has been caring for me all the way along. I think even before Bill was murdered, he and I had had a conversation in the house and I don't know whether it was a word of knowledge or what it was, but I said that some of the things that he was doing could well bring about his death. And it was on that that he went the next day and wrote a letter to be read at his funeral. So I, I think the Lord in many ways has been walking and taking me in his hand over many years. But certainly the church community is hugely important. Family is hugely important. Communities are hugely important. I think it's hugely important that as we meet people, even if what has happened to them is a long time ago, that we can say, I was thinking about you, I was praying for you at that time, so that people know that they weren't just in that situation on their own, that it was a, really a corporate thing, because this is a small geographical area, Northern Ireland, and you don't go very many places these days without running into somebody that you know or that knows somebody you know. So I think we need to be thinking more of how we support one another, but I think support is hugely important. Mm. And at, at such a fraught time for victims and survivors because the legacy debate is so live, what more could be done at leadership levels, if, if say within the church or politically to, to bring that duty of care um, alive and in, in this context? I think people should be given an opportunity of telling their story. For some people, telling their story might well be a really good part of their healing and their sense of, I have been heard. I don't know that justice is ever going to be achieved. Um, in my case, there was one person went to prison, but there were many more people involved. And at some stage, a prisoner will finish his sentence and get out. And so if I'm looking for justice, and that justice is put them in prison and for a long time, at some stage, they will get out and I could be standing next to them in the supermarket. So my justice won't last for all of my lifetime. So we've got to find a way of living with the pain, living with the loss. And I think hearing one another's stories is a good thing. I think it gives people a voice. If they don't get it in court, then they maybe get it in some sort of a format, in some sort of a, a listening ear, a sympathetic ear that will maybe understand. I think I have a good understanding of how people who feel they have been hard done by have been neglected. And that 
helps me to understand maybe why things happened the way they did in this, in our history. David, is there a role for churches to step up here? You, you have talked in the statement about creating shared spaces and places where people can dialogue and engage. What more could be done um, at a church leadership level? So for us, Jude, I think the challenge here is can we address the horrific realities which we've been speaking about for the past number of moments, recognise and name them, and as Beryl has said, find the space for stories to be told, while at the same time holding, holding out the hope that reconciliation might be possible. And I think that's the difficulty with violence, because it toxifies relationship, it closes down conversation, it makes it very difficult for genuine personal connection to happen. It's not impossible, and in, by the grace of God, there have been some phenomenal examples of this. But for us as church leaders, the one thing we haven't talked about here yet is reconciliation. As to whether violence has closed down the possibility for reconciliation or whether there might be ways and spaces created where reconciliation could be envisaged and actually achieved. So maybe as we move towards the conclusion of this, it would be useful to reflect on whether we think that violence closes down the possibility of that or whether there might be routes that we could take, encouragements we could find to enable us to press on uh, towards the goal of being reconciled. I think my personal situation, uh, one recollection I have is of being at a, a Bible study one evening and two folk were there one this evening who I didn't know, a guy who was from the Shankill Road and a girl from Monaghan direction and they were sitting chatting and then they told their story, the story of the guy from the Shankill Road was of being in the paramilitaries, not having done anything desperately serious but been very much encouraging people to to violence and to and to murder. And the girl was from Monaghan and she was had been previously in the provisional IRA. Both had come to faith separate from each other and they met for the first time in this room. Their story was was wonderful to hear of how they'd come to faith, but just actually see them sitting there chatting to each other was actually just absolutely wonderful. And I would have wanted all my friends to come in and see this, to see two folk who had previously had been alienated is not even a strong enough word to what they felt for each other, but now had a love for each other. And I think it amazed them as they sat there. The saddest part for the girl from Monaghan was that she said that initially she was the one who dragged her family into paramilitarism and she had found faith and come out of it, but they were still in it. And that's the toxic effect of this. And she was desperately, desperately sad about that. And I suppose that's for a lot of us, we can get ourselves involved into situations which can spiral us downwards into, into things that we never would have dreamt of doing. So we need a society that tells these stories and allows people to share their feelings. Now how that is done, I'm not quite sure how that is done, but I think we need to be willing to have these conversations across barriers that we think are there already. Beryl, you're nodding your head. What would facilitate greater reconciliation at, the, at this stage? What are your thoughts on that? I would love to see some sort of facility, whether it's led by church leaders or church leaders and politicians, where there was an opportunity for people to go and tell their story. I had a wonderful opportunity just presented itself one night uh, when I was in Londonderry some years ago. I was introduced to a chap and it turned out he had been a hunger striker, but he had been 
his life was saved because his family pleaded with him after many, 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 many days on hunger strike not to go to death but to start eating again. His health was hugely impacted by that, what he did to his body. But we were able to sit and talk. He knew something of my story, but I didn't know what had motivated him. And it was really interesting to hear how he found himself in that position. I don't know whether any particular good came of it, but there was a greater understanding between us as two human beings. And I think that if we were to hear some of the stories about why people took certain decisions or did certain things, maybe if we knew the background as to what had motivated them or why they were doing what they're doing, maybe if we had been in that place, maybe we would have been doing something similar. And it, I think the humanity is common to us all. We just maybe are in different places. My motivation for it and recommendation is that the, the greatest reconciler was Christ himself, who came to reconcile humanity to God. And so as a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus, I think it behoves each one of us who call ourselves followers of Christ to do all we can to be reconciled to our fellow human beings and to do whatever we can in our own areas of influence to bring about reconciliation. David, as we land the chat, what hopes do you see in the course of your work through this year, the conversations you've had, what we've listened to today, and also within the church statement, that commitment to doing things differently and working to, to bring change? What, what's your hope for the future in all of this? The word hope is important to me for this incoming year because it's my theme for for the year as moderator. Last year, my theme was home. Uh, just changed one letter, home to hope. But looking forward in the belief that God has not finished with us yet. And reflecting back on what Gilly and Beryl have shared with us, I think we have evidence of that, that even in the most desperate circumstances, even in moments when the darkness is at its worst, such as, for example, on Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross in a horrific act of violence, through that came peace and hope and life because Friday gives way to Sunday and uh, Sunday is Resurrection Day. And for Christians, that's not just a symbol. Uh, it's not just uh, an expression of some vague desire that things would improve. It's actually an article of faith for us. We are resurrection people. So as I reflect on this, yes, I do believe that I have hope and that this is not simply pie in the sky, but rather an understanding of who God is, that he is a God who unpicks the worst that we can do to each other and redeems it and hands it back to us so that we can be whole people, fully healed, walking in fellowship with him. And as we do that and discover this extraordinary redemption, uh, so we can walk in fellowship with those with whom we might historically be considered enemies. So hope is there. Uh, I don't think that the Lord has done with us. And I'm so very grateful for Beryl and Gilly in sharing and giving us reasons to express and articulate that hope together in this all-important year of centenary. David, thank you so much. And Beryl and Gilly, thank you for sharing so honestly and personally with us. We really appreciate it. This podcast series was supported by a grant from the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council. And just a reminder, this episode is part of a series of podcasts with church leaders as they reflect personally on this centenary year. So do check out the rest of those chats found on all the usual podcast platforms. Enjoy the rest of your day.